0: Have you seen like how good like the auto just, like scribe of like telephone calls and stuff is now and like voice memos? Uh, it's really really good now.
1: I imagine it's kind of crazy how good they're getting at uh, at word processing. No, I no, Ben, mean, they're, they're getting, getting good at processing, not necessarily understanding meaning, but ostensibly that's kind of the next step.
0: I mean, but that's not the thing. You have an Amazon Echo in every home, you know, that can transcribe words probably if not perfectly, then nearly perfectly, and would only get better over time as it gets corrected or whatever. And then you just, all you have to do is do keywords, keyword searches. So.
1: Yep. And I mean, that's going to be a goldmine for Amazon being able to do advertising.
0: Mm-hmm. No. I really has anyone gotten like a definitive answer on oh, a yeah. thing where it's like yeah. I was talking about that, and then I started seeing ads about that.
1: Uh, to your question, Brevin, I've never seen a definitive answer, but I have defini- or I have definitely like done experience that myself talking about something that i have never made a google search for Mm -hmm. with i'm getting advertised Uh,
0: i don't want to believe that that it's true but i feel like it
2: it might be yeah and you you, if you look through all the contracts you signed it's probably somewhere in there probably Mm -hmm. you know like microsoft teams is also freaky as you can you know turn on closed captioning Mm -hmm. for live meetings yeah but if you and it will and you can also have it save the captions the thing is, if you turn on closed captioning halfway through the meeting, and you go to like the saved captions, they have captions for the whole meeting in there. Yep, that's yeah, correct. Yeah. We found that. <laughs> oh, it's evil. It's
1: evil. <laughs> yep, yep.
0: You, you worked for them, Stephen.
1: Past tense. I can now uh, wash my hands.
0: Please tell me that you put like a doomsday device bug in there.
1: <laughs> I, I would have been able to put a doomsday d- bug in like their calendar prototype that will never see the light of day.
2: Hmm, I see
1: and that would involve I mean, the outlook calendar say, yeah. like
2: that would involve the outlook calendar working perfectly which Ooh. you know yeah yeah so I'm, not too, I'm not i'm not i'm afraid of the outlook calendar being yeah
1: i don't need to bug calendar logic because calendar logic is inherently a bug
0: hello everyone and welcome to yet another episode of the problem with reading I'm Brevin I'm Stephen and I'm Sam and here we are oh it's just it's good to hear that isn't it Stephen
1: it really is we in, have missed that sound
0: instead of just the deafening like beats of our hearts and the you know the silence of the rooms that we're in and it's just like there was just o- only an echo a memory of I'm Sam but now we hear it it's back it's embodied mm-hmm.
1: The Sam-filled uh, hole, the Sam hole in our heart has been filled. I'm
0: That's true. All right. So, boys, what are we drinking right now? Steven?
1: Well, I am drinking uh, some homebrew raspberry wine. Uh, it is, uh, unfortunately, only a few weeks into the process, but I couldn't uh, couldn't resist and had to take a bit of a taste test. Uh, it's, it's quite good. Uh, it tastes very tart uh, and just a little bit thin, so hopefully with time and age, it will uh, kind of... Get a bit more of a rich
0: body. Damn, raspberry wine. Aren't aren't Mm -hmm. you just
1: like a Redwall character there? Aren't I though? I still need to read that, and I mean, if I still need to, I probably never will. That that time has passed.
0: That was really solid. That 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 series was was with me from fifth grade to probably probably like tenth. I enjoyed them all through there.
1: I have yet to hear a negative review of it. They're
0: they're they're very wholesome. They're very very wholesome. Uh, Sam, did you read Redwall?
2: I never did, unfortunately.
0: Ah, oh, you barbarians! Okay, well, just the I'll just give you like the two second thing. It's you know, it's all the animals fighting evil. The rats, the stoats, uh, and um, all, all, all like the the weasels. All of the rat-like uh, animals in nature are the bad guys, and then and then occasionally their leader will be some outlandish creature like a lizard or something or a fox. Uh, <laughs> foxes are, are are evil, and all the good characters are like otters and mice um, and uh, rabbits. All, all, like, wholesome, cuddly creatures? So, like, and, the vegetarians
1: are the good guys, and... Well, you no, know, like, vegetarian, non-predator, and then you have predator, and, like... Scavenger. Uh, what, yeah, carrion. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: Pretty much, yeah. Um, but the best part about the Redwall books is that in every book, without fail, there would be one to two long chapters where they just describe a massive feast, like a medieval feast with just all and like all the different animals have their own specialties and they wheel out like eight different kinds of cheese and pies and pastries and they describe them all in excruciating detail and then everyone just pigs out. And it, <laughs> they're it's so good, it's so good. And there was always raspberry wine, um, among other things, all all sorts of stuff. They would have their ales and their wines and their cordials, raspberry dandelion cordial or whatever. Oh, you know, uh, good good times. Uh, but Sam. Do you have uh, wow. dandelion cordial there, I see?
2: This is not dandelion cordial. This is a, um, a Moscato. No. I don't remember what winery it's from, but it's a, it's a white wine Moscato. Um, I got it because my fiance is coming over later this evening and she loves Moscato. So I bought a bottle today. That's well, about well, it.
0: Well played indeed. Yeah. As for myself, I am drinking a, uh, a lovely, in my lovely uh, shaped beer glass, uh, some Trader Jose uh lager trader joe's lager it's you know it's it's a solid like a base like if i said you know like on the menu at some place it's like the don't ask what it is i this is a great feature that i've seen in 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 some restaurants is their their cheapest beer is uh it's like you know five dollars for the pint or whatever but you don't get to ask what it is um and that's what this is but like one step above that so like definitely uh definitely okay is uh is, is is how I would rate this this logger.
1: To be fair, sometimes that's all you want out of beer is just like this is acceptable.
0: Mm-hmm. No, yeah, and and it's definitely like a, a very you know not not just a step but like a stretching step. You know when you're like you really should just jump across across the gap, but you're trying to step it I- instead, like mm-hmm. that kind of a step above like Bud Light or any of the uh, other trash stuff. I don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Um. But yes, uh, we are on, once again, in Episode 2 of Season 3, The Master and His Emissary. And, and, we are so confident in our newfound skills, our New Year's resolutions to not drone on and on and on, uh, that we are going to do an entire chapter, Chapter 7, Imitation and the Evolution of Culture, in a single sitting. We had to yell at Stephen to cut down his six pages of notes to something more reasonable. Uh, so let's let him have a go at it and, uh, see, see if we can keep this under, uh, hour 45, Steven.
1: Right, right. We'll see, uh, we'll see how it goes. I did cut it down, uh, significantly. So let's, uh, let's see where this is. Uh, so well we have been waiting for it and here it is Uh, cultural commentary with the thesis being that one can trace the constructive conflict between the left and right hemispheres of the brain throughout history and that this conflict is ultimately ending in a culture that is dominated by the left hemisphere's mode of being this being the emissary of the master McGillchrist, doing housekeeping as he is wont to do clarifies a few things first he establishes his goal to uh, that his goal is primarily to trace the conflict throughout western history saying that the scope of this book is already borderlining on out of control that to include Eastern history would blow it out of the realm of the reasonable. He also adds that there is less of a need, as Eastern culture has fewer symptoms of a culture that has ceded to one hemisphere. While there is an explosion of culture in both the East and the West around 800-200 BC, during uh, which the great thinkers of the time, the Buddha, Confucius, and Plato emerged, along with most of the world's great religions, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, etc. However, while these, place, while these take place roughly at the same time, there is no Eastern equivalent of the Enlightenment or Scientific Revolution. Science itself, while remaining an important enterprise, has not come to be viewed as the primary epistemology that it has been in the West, which it, it's an interesting method of diagnosing left-brain ideology that, while I'm not necessarily opposed, I'm very much hoping that he'll clarify a bit more. Uh... He does promise that he'll explore this a bit, but it will be brief. Uh, this, of course, begs the question of why the shifts of balance have occurred, uh, the shifts of balance being between the left and right hemisphere. Michael um, Chris comments that different fields will have different answers, given that experts will be seeing things in a fi- fine-grained way. The historian, for example, will give things an account of power of nations or economics, holding these things steady to account for other changing variables. While McGilchrist isn't opposed to this, nor should he be, given that he's sort of doing this himself, viewing things primarily through the lens of neuroscience, he says that this is not an accurate way of viewing the human experience. Nothing is static, everything is always in motion. He goes on to discuss the two drives that many philosophers and all theologians are in a habit of discussing, speaking of a cosmic struggle between these two forces. He's quick to say that metaphorically, this is precisely what he is saying. These two modes of being are at war within our very selves, but he's equally quick to say that he has no desire, nor does he believe himself qualified, to answer whether or not it is true literally. He cites Freud's Eros and Thanatos, Jung's Attractive and Repulsive, Nietzsche's Apollonian, Apollonian and Dionysian, and Scheller's Drang and Geist, all of whom conceived these drives as, quote, operating through natural processes, invisible but made visible over the long, long run in their effects. In the case on the human brain, mind, and culture, just as the invisible wind is made visible in its effects over millennia on the rock, end quote. He then asked the important question, quote, are there wills to be seen at work in the hemispheres, end quote. This is something we've discussed previously, that it's possibly a line of criticism to simply say, congratulations, Bill Christ, and Christ. you've identified two different ways of thinking. What on earth does that have to do with the hemispheres? And uh, and it's clear it's clearly why he spent the last few hundred pages laying out the argument that there is very good reason to believe that these two paradigms of thought are inextricably tied to the two hemispheres. Surprisingly, somewhat, uh, he hand waves this question, saying, "Quote: To ask questions about the existence of such drives is, I believe, perfectly legitimate, but they simply seek que- explanation at a different level." Whatever the answer, the picture will look the same, end quote. Quite possible because he's already argued compellingly for this. It seems his patience, as well as possibly the readers, has dried up for proving this. However this looks, the history of Western culture in particular and human culture in general is marked by a constant balancing game between these two tries. The brain is not the driver of culture, nor is culture the driver of brain development, but rather these two influence each other. Before discussing how this works, he wants to, to briefly discuss why this comes about. Even if we don't associate the drives with the hemispheres, it is reasonable to suggest that the worlds of each are complemented by the other and, quote, in a situation where one predominates, the lack of the other will become increasingly apparent, end quote. The greater the independence of the hemispheres, the further they can go, shaping culture, which shapes the brain, and so on. This divergence can be constructive as a pattern that is now well familiar but still bears repeating quote we know that there is a continual tendency for the authenticity of the right hemisphere presencing to be transformed into an inauthentic representing in the left in essence what was living becomes a cliché the experience of inauthenticity of the right hemisphere's world as it is represented in the left may then, logically, lead in one of two directions, and I believe we can see them both exemplified in the history that we will be looking at in this part of the book, end quote. The first direction is a healthy homeostasis, that of a pendulum swing. Authenticity is ironized, but then is re-authenticated. David Foster Wallace, incidentally, would be a prime example of this, as would the metamodern movement itself. However, the second direction is less healthy. The left hemisphere's view of the right, recall, is that it is the inauthentic, the unreal, the invalid. Quote, instead of a corrective swing of the pendulum, therefore, there is a loss of of homeostasis, and the result is positive feedback, whereby the left hemisphere's values simply become entrenched. End quote. He follows it with a wry comment on this being the primary reason that the left hemisphere continually gains ground but never cedes it. Note that this is ostensibly what is happening to our art, our religion, the natural world, tradition, etc., though that's getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, this leads to another question, though, uh, how this goes about. McGilchrist is very fast to say that he is not saying that the changes in ideas in, in the last few thousand years have corresponded to a change in the structure of the brain itself, though he admits that there may be small but perceptible changes between the brains of modern humanity and pre achaean humans. Large structural changes occur over thousands of years. The changes we see are not of this type. Nonetheless, quote, our experience of the world helps to mold our brains and our brains help to mold our experience of the world. Patterns of brain function, if not changes in visible structure, are likely to be involved, end quote. Natural selection may explain some of these changes. For example, a new population introduced to central Mediterranean land in antiquity spurring on uh, an outbreak of cultural novelty or the loss of ways of thinking and being during the dark ages after the fall of Rome. But you can't use this to explain the loss of ways of thinking during, for example, the Renaissance. The time period is simply too short for natural selection to be the methodology, and there weren't massive population introductions or removals. McGilchrist poses epigenetics as a solution to this conundrum, quote, epigenetic mechanisms do not depend on alterations in the actual sequence of nucleotides in the DNA within the genes, but on factors which influence what is expressed by the same DNA, quote. And for epigenetics, I will turn it over to Brevin. Hopefully that wasn't too long when Brevin's muted.
0: So here it is that McGilchrist is going to introduce the intervening factor in this mix. What is it that the hemispheres are interacting with that are shaping their development, uh, at least on an individual basis and over time, while not actually changing their structure, their uh, actual genetic makeup? And for this, he uses the concept of memes, the cultural equivalent of genes. Uh, And just to be careful before we get too excited, he's using the very technical... Uh, academic version not the fun internet uh version of, of of memes although you know there's probably some debate as to whether uh or not or not they really need to be distinguished but the definition is as follows uh quote a meme is said to be a replicator of cultural information that one mind transmits verbally or by demonstration to another mind examples being tunes ideas catchphrases clothes fashions ways of making pots or building arches, and other concepts, ideas, theories, opinions, beliefs, practices, habits, dances, and moods, ultimately and inevitably, including the idea of God, the Dawkins' delusion, end quote. And uh, so these memes, at least in some in- interpretations, are understood as uh, replicated. They replicate themselves throughout society. But McGilchrist says that this is the wrong way to look at it. And it's uh, it's an inhuman way of looking at it, because humans don't replicate things mindlessly like machines genes are replicated mindlessly and they're precisely the same as what went in unless there's an error then there there we get evolution but humans aren't replicators they're imitators they add their own spin to things they can copy the fashion or the essence of the thing without it being a purely mechanical copying it's more than simple uh than replication it's imitation that has the added human element. And further, humans are able to imitate both means and ends, unlike animals who are able to imitate only ends. Um, and this is tied in part to our empathy, our ability to have f- fellow feeling, to, uh, m- uh, to mirror neurons, etc., where we actually replicate others' emotions and what they're doing with the right hemisphere uh, in a way that appears in our brain as if we are doing the thing ourselves. Uh, and then that's distinct from the left hemisphere's way, which is knowing how we ought to feel, or what, like, if you stood back, what someone would think about a thing, uh, were they not doing it themselves? And empathy is also what allows us to work with other people as a single unit, to almost merge into one being. Um, And McGilkis writes, the process of mimesis is one of intention, aspiration, attraction, and empathy, drawing heavily on the right hemisphere, whereas copying is the following of disembodied procedures and algorithms and is left hemisphere-based. The distinction is similar to that sometimes claimed between metaphor on one hand and simile on the other. Simile has no interiority, end quote. And here, McGilchrist scales it up a little bit even further because we can interact with things like mythology and values and virtues and can interact with them on a similar level to the way that we interact with other people. We can have empathy with them. We can enter into being... With them, he he brings up the example of uh, many hi- historical figures seeing themselves completely unironically as Caesar, as Caesar in their own time. Um, and there's a side note here uh, that's quite relevant, I think, and was important for me, but we can talk about it later about why living virtually by imitating the virtuous is not just mindless repetition, which always sounded dumb. Like you don't get the like you don't get the interiority, the content of the values, if you just. You know, copy what the good things to do are, but what Christ is saying with imitation is that you can do that, and it and, and it's more than just replication; it's imitation, and it gets a lot more depth. i see Pascal. So, uh, pausing here because Stephen and I actually overlapped on our notes. Is there anything uh, big in that first little sec- uh, section there, Stephen, uh, oh. that you'd want to add?
1: Um, for the most part, you actually you hit most of the points I was wanting to cover. You actually even got uh, one or two of the uh, exact quotes that I was going to use. I will – the only thing I, I want to add is that um, it may seem from the start that uh, the idea that an animal will adopt the goal but not the means, it, that that's, it's actually a step in the wrong direction for us to adopt the means and not the goal – Uh, but this is actually a really important uh, move. Uh, Quote, other species may adopt the same goal as another individual member of their species and may succeed in finding their own way to achieve it. But only humans directly, directly imitate the means as well as the ends Um, end quote. And for McGilchrist, this is huge because this allows us to escape from our own experience. Uh, This allows us to um, kind of escape solipsism as it were, which uh, as, I want to do that. I mean, that's David Foster Wallace's kind of greatest and most important project is getting out of ourselves. And this is how we do it by imitation. Uh, but other than that, yeah, you had everything, uh, had everything I was going to. Perfect. The next section
0: is about what he calls the imitation gene, not speaking of course of an actual gene, uh, but why sort of a general skills approach would be more advantageous to a group than a specific one. And and he games it out over time where more or less having like a meta, Imitation skill is better than having any one particular skill uh, under certain conditions. Because if you undergo, if your environment undergoes multiple stressors, you're able to imitate someone who has the skill and is able to uh, succeed in the environment. And you're able to get more skills overall than if you specialize into something in uh, per- in particular. And his overall point here is just that imitation is a meta-level skill. And um, further that we become who or what we imitate in many in, in many important ways as we interact with our environment and with those who are interacting with the environment. However, he's careful to say, distinct from genes, the imitation practice isn't mechanistic. It's not a push from behind, he says. It's an attraction. It's a pull. We're imitating something that's pulling us in. And here's where he starts bringing in some like mind-blowing stuff, where you have things like values, which he struggles for the word. But things like values and myths that we can imitate and that pull us to them as opposed to being pushed from behind by, you know, purely animalistic or environmental concerns. And these values are instinctively understood by the right hemisphere as independent from instrumental morality. As I previously said, we can like feel our way into them. They aren't measured by utility, but for the value that they have in and of themselves, things like curry, uh, curry, wow. I, well, I could use some curry, but uh, courage, beauty, intelligence, self-sacrifice, things that have value sort of almost regardless of the situation that they're in, at least some value. Uh, and uh, he uses the German philosopher, Schaler, and Schaler has all these values in there when he's trying to talk about them. I think we ran into Scheler in McIntyre, but I can't for the life of me remember what uh, that was. We'll have to look it up. But Schaler puts utility on the lowest tier. It's only one of the ways of measuring value. However... Utility is the only value that the left hemisphere recognizes. It puts all of the other values on the scale of utility, and that's what it measures them against. For example, courage is uh, valued because it's, it's useful for the group to have some people who are willing to go into danger. Beauty helps you get a mate. It's it's entirely um, uh, utilitarian in that respect, but that's a lie. That's that's the left hemisphere's way of, of of viewing it and relating to it. And the right hemisphere can instinctively and naturally understand that they're that these bigger things are actually values that are that transcend. They're beyond good and evil, or at least the utility of good and evil. And the right hemisphere is drawn to these things that are beyond themselves. But it also has the risk, as we've mentioned previously that the right hemisphere's world and its attraction to these values also can become too boring, too everyday, which is why there's, in in a healthy mind, there's the back and forth where the left hemisphere can take you out of the world, allow you to, I was thinking of uh, Stephen Walker Percy here, of um, reentry, uh, where you can go to the unnatural view, recognize that it's unnatural and like above the world, floating above it, and then come back and return to the authenticity of the right hemisphere and the real world and continue to experience it. Uh, and there's a quote that quote, the right hemisphere is at risk from the familiarity entailed in its very engagement with the world as the world presences the left hemisphere from the familiarity of the cliche disengaged representation. Each cultural shift can be seen as a response to the eventual inauthenticity of the world, according to one or more of the hemispheres. But for the right hemisphere, the route back has to be back through engagement with unattractive power beyond itself. So to sort of recap and sum up, this interaction of the right and left hemisphere with memes is not a mechanistic pushed from behind process. And it doesn't change the physicality of the brain itself, but rather it creates an environment to which the brain responds. And as McGilchrist has started to suggest and to argue that this interaction with the brain, whether it's right hemisphere imitation or left hemisphere replication as it's responding to the environment it's reifying it and creating and creating it again and pushing it further and further in a direction that has some pathologies associated uh with it uh sam you were frantically looking up uh shaler in uh after
2: virtue i was i grabbed after virtue um he's not anywhere anywhere, at least not in the bibliography index no there are a few other names there are um you might be thinking of two other names um there was Shayling, Thomas Shayling, Scheffler, uh, or Sailors. Hmm. hmm. I mean, but no,
1: Shay. Chris has brought up uh, Shayler in the past, I believe. So maybe we. I mean, and we've been going over this for the last what year? Uh. So I mean, it it's could coming be... up on a year. Yeah. Yep. Quite <laughs> the journey.
0: That it has. Okay, that's fair. Maybe the oh, yep. previous chapter.
1: But to link. Uh, after virtue, with uh, master and his emissary, as we are wont to do, uh, imitation as virtue. I actually really like this uh, mm-hmm. this combination. Um, both uh, and Sam uh, brought up his discussion of Pascal and uh, the yeah. monastic tradition, in saying that this is this is a truth that uh, kind of across the board, uh, holy figures, monastic traditions of all Pew, they've all acknowledged that you how do you become good well just practice being good do you want to do you want to know how to become courageous well just go practice acts of courage even if you don't feel it and eventually you will feel courageous um and that is a very pulling that's a talos that the gilchrist is establishing maybe not in the language of virtue but he's definitely playing with these ideas and i'm guessing intentionally um, especially given that he's referencing both monastic traditions and pascal um and, yeah. and it, this also makes sense why Howard Ross, I, I think McIntyre Mac, brought this up, but Howard Wass also played with the idea of uh, I, that uh, we become uh, the stories that we read, or the stories that we tell. Yeah, hey, McIntyre talks
2: about that in his narratives. Oh, yeah, right, right, yeah, his exactly. narrative, yeah.
0: The bureaucrat, my favorite story to tell.
1: <laughs> uh, but, like, that providing us examples to imitate, but, like McIntyre said, we find th- th- this imitation is not a static algorithm that we just simply take in and produce the same thing. We incorporate it we incorporate it with our own narrative and it becomes this, this living thing that uh, is unique to every individual, though the same thread can be traced throughout. Did you have something, Sam? Um,
2: no, not much beyond that. Well, actually, there was one little bit. It, it's kind of a meta point, but in reading this chapter, um, especially after I was cramming so much of him last week to catch up with where you guys are at, um, it's really evident how much he is like programming us to read in a certain way. There was a section on page uh, 249 when, he, when he's talking about um, imitation, and he says that it was precisely because the process is not mechanical reproduction, but is an imaginative inhabiting of the other. And he just to say that and I'm already thinking, oh, right brain. Yep. And he never even has to say that imitation is primarily a right brain thing in order to make his point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So right brain. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um to go back to to McIntyre since he's been so, brought up again. I mean there, oh, Sam Froze, I didn't know if he if he was saying something.
1: Yeah, let's let's wait for that to catch up. Nope. Okay. All right, you're back.
0: What were you saying? Yep. Oh, okay. Um no nothing. I, I was just mentioning that. Um Right. So to bring it back to McIntyre once again, because um it's been this this lifelong long goal of mine to make a chart so I can have like after virtue and the summary and its effects and this book and a and a couple other key uh texts and just chart them out like as they're diagnosing what I feel like is just different versions of the same problem, different facets of, you know, the the diamond that is our uh you know, decaying society. This metaphysical wasteland, as it this, were? This metaphysical wasteland, all all the different perspectives of uh of the people in their bunkers looking out over the desiccated wastes of our minds. Um but that while McIntyre's talking about, you know, my sort of snippy, slightly inaccurate summary is that ethics is fake. Um and that's what we learned from McIntyre. That is, if you map that over to this book, that is You know, ethics abstracted from things. That's the left hemisphere's way of dealing with problems of morality is through ethics, whereas the right hemisphere's brain is through something more like virtue. And that's those that really is like the Mm -hmm. instinctive, um, charactered ways that they would attempt to solve the problems that appear in that arena. So when McIntyre is tracking the loss of the language of virtue coupled with a loss of, uh, you know, communities in which to practice it you have the same thing happening with the swing uh, to the left hemisphere, where that's the language that you are allowed to speak about morals. Mm
1: -hmm. I I do like that, uh, that framing of McIntyre and it it makes sense in his history of ethics. It does seem to be one of continually going more to a left mode of being, uh, adding abstractions. You add abstractions to virtue and it becomes a rule, a deontology, uh, and if you add abstraction to that, it becomes utility. You become a world. Yeah. And then you add an abstraction on that. It's like, well, what do we have left? We have, these are things that make me feel good. Therefore, I want you to do the same.
2: Uh, yeah. is. I mean, it basically gets to what can you ascertain from your senses in the moment? Oh, I can ascertain pleasure. And therefore, you do a simple math problem mm-hmm. and maximize that. And that's all you have for ethics. Versus when you look at virtue or the right brain view, the I mean ethics is nonsensical. But you have this ongoing practice of virtue that is cross generational, mm-hmm. um, extending both prior to yourself and past yourself.
0: An entire field mean, field of, yeah, an entire field of, of, of narrative yeah, that, you yeah. have to, that you have to inhabit that is entirely contextualized.
1: Yeah, it's connected. It's not
0: atomistic. Yep. And the other thing. Um, that i was that i was thinking of um is that uh oh no i lost it what was it oh right so when he's talking about and like to be fair you know he's not saying what other people haven't said that like culture can affect how we think about things it's like yes thank you but what it does do i think is it does help make a little bit of a stronger argument for the idea of a like a, a history of philosophy uh philosophy, I cannot talk today. A history of philosophy approach to diagnosing modern problems. Because if you look at it as memes uh that are interacting with and organically change or changing and moving and then interacting with our brains and getting reified or uh or altered there, um, that can make it more convincing as a argument for how things turned to how they are now than just saying like, oh yeah, all of the philosophers like talked to each other and then they decided slowly over time that whatever philosophy we currently believe is the natural endpoint. It makes more sense if you think of it um, mimetically, as opposed to you just like more the, the traditional straight line argument. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. It does provide a nice framework to, to approach this, this issue with. Mm -hmm. One problem
2: that I just noticed with this framework is that it doesn't necessarily establish where it starts. If you're focusing entirely on imitation, you have to be imitating something. Mm-hmm. How can the left brain imitating the right brain lead to just more left brain? I mean, something needs to jump it kind of out of its virtue-based groove, well, so to speak.
1: I'm not sure if the left brain is cited as imitating the right brain. It more takes what the right brain has and it applies layers of abstraction over it.
2: Yeah, yes, I, mean, I, I do
1: see a, a similar problem, though, in imitation. Well, you do need to be imitating something, and so there is kind of this, this need to bootstrap the imitation, uh, Mm -hmm. or experience, or the imitation, uh, whatever that phenomenon is, I can imitate your, or I guess to get real life with it, a baby can imitate its parents' uh, forms of speech. And this starts in forms of Mm babble, but then actually starts to form words, and then those words actually acquire meaning. Uh, But its parents are able to speak because of their parents, because of their parents, because of their parents, etc., etc. So at some point, humanity had to kind of, like, there needed to be some form of bootstrapping Whatever that looked like, it is difficult to conceive. But I think that's less of a problem uh, for imitation than it is for natural selection. Um, I, I think yeah. the goat Chris at least briefly touches on that, although the argument is far from exhaustive. Uh, he, he says something to the effect of like one of the big problems facing natural uh, selection. That paradigm is taken in the vacuum is something like language. Uh, whereas imitation at least has some amount of wiggle room that I can play with there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and if I recall, maybe this isn't precisely the question that we're talking about, but I mean, the, he pulls the development of language from music first. Um, and, and, and music is, or music broadly understood as sounds that communicate or sounds and, and gestures. I, I, I suppose musical language that communicate emotions and, and intention, uh, you don't need a lot of natural selection type, like the genesis there is more obvious. And then from there, you just have gradual enhancement um, to the point where you have abstract language. But um, yeah. yeah, as we've said, hardly exhaustive. Uh, but you want to know something that is exhausting, but not exhausted. That is the debate on the right wing among our, uh, it's, its high priests and clerics about whence from here, Uh, do we go? And Sam, I believe you have an article for us on this very topic.
2: I've got an old article on this. Yeah, but I I thought it was interesting. I've read it a couple times, but I read it again this week or this morning. And um, I do, I do like it. And I think that it, I I think it could deserve to be reframed in our current life. This is the article in the New Yorker by Benjamin Wallace Wells, uh, David French, Sora Mamari and the battle for the future of conservatism. Uh, this was originally published in September of 2019, and it was basically um, the New Yorker kind of summarizing to their readership, where are the big intellectual debates on in the Republican Party or on the fringes of the Republican Party, and where's it going from here? Um, the article is primarily centered around a debate that took place at the Catholic University of America between David French and Soram um, which was, I haven't actually seen the debate, um, I don't know, have either of you guys watched it? Can't yes, have. Yeah, I haven't. But the article gives a good summary of what was going on. And basically, Amari is taking the position of a far more nationalist conservatism um, and far more amenable to Trump versus French is, um, well, first of all, an evangelical. And secondly, is taking on the more traditional neoconservative, whatever that word means. Um, it's kind of lost all meaning at this point, but taking on the... Um, the 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 standard republican lens i should also note that amari is a recent convert to catholicism uh, he converted in 2016 um and so that is something that plays into his philosophy uh to summarize their individual positions french used to be a litigator on religious liberty for about 20 years he was just he was a lawyer doing religious liberty um cases um he falls was generally a very traditional conservative he was a big proponent of the evangelicals for romney ryan which obviously didn't go very well for him but in 2016 um he came he became more he got a lot more spotlight when um irving crystal i think it was i want to make sure i get the name right there was bill crystal definitely so, not irving crystal it was bill crystal uh, no, uh, Irving crystal way back in the day yeah bill crystal When bill crystal asked him um to run for president as a challenger to trump basically to run as a Hail Mary for traditional conservatives at the GOP convention and hope to pull some electors um, in order to be the Republican nominee instead of Trump. He ended up pulling out of the race when he realized that it was a losing endeavor and it was never going to actually work. But because of that short campaign, he became post-election, he became a very frequent target for Trump and the overall Trump crowd. Um, An interesting bit in this article is where, um, Wells is talking with uh, Nancy French, his wife, um, who felt that they never shifted in their political position, and David never shifted in his position. But it seemed like eighty million people shifted entirely around them. Later on in the article, it talk, uh, French talks more about how the problem that we're experiencing is that both sides think they're losing, um, where victory in the political realm is the natural state of things. That is where we should be at, always. And any loss is absolutely unacceptable in a travesty. Um, he says that bad things and losses should be allowed to happen, and that's just how the American political system and democracy must be able to carry on. Um, when talking about some about the mindset of the people who are supporting Trump, he says that basically they want to feel like they're part of a virtuous movement. They want to be capturing the best um, future for our country, and they will continue to support Trump because they've already placed their support behind them. And to not would be to say. They were wrong um in doing this all norms all democratic norms all traditions are thrown out of the way in order to combat who they see as the primary enemies the radical left and tech companies um when asked what he would do about certain crises um against the culture he says that the first amendment was to, still exists and therefore we have to allow for shared spaces to exist and we can't use the force of government in order to restrict them ultimately when talking when discussing the relationship between Trump and evangelical pastors, um, a concerningly tight relationship. He actually says that in his line of work, he's seen a large amount of pastors who are afraid to speak up, who are really quite opposed to Trump, but they feel like that if they are to speak up, they would lose congregation members and broader support in the community. So where Amari sees a huge line of support and growing support for these nationalist policies French sees weakness. Now on to Amari. Amari claims that conservative values face an existential threat, um, that we need to win the next presidency, and obviously didn't, or Trump did not win at least, and therefore we have to embrace, we, meaning he's speaking about conservatives in general, must embrace scorched earth policies, the scorched earth policies that Trump embraces in order to be sure to absolutely win every political uh, battle. Most of this debate in the early or in the early summer of 2019 was set off by the drag queen story hours that took place in sacramento at uh, sacramento amari saw these as a huge culture war loss and a sign that the culture was completely falling apart uh causing him to publish the article against david frenchism um this is where he called for most of these solutions such as a scorcher earth policies and eventually did lead to this debate at the cua or most conservatives opposed um, the stance that he put forth in this article, but a few found themselves in favor. Alan Muller was a particular um, interesting supporter of this article and was somebody who had traditionally supported the David French camp of more traditional Republican policies. Amari hasn't always been like this. In the past, he was a relatively straightforward conservative, um, but he seems to have been changed by Trump, as the article. He was Brexit and other populist movements and even overtly opposed to Trump in the days of the 2016 campaign. He became concerned, more concerned, or his his allegiance shifted with two main concerns. The first was the liberal reaction to populism. He thought that the reaction that people were having to Trump was entirely anti-democratic and destructive to um, the tenants of America. And then secondly, he attributes his conversion to Catholicism in December of 2016. Um, this reshifted really shifted his focus by seeing individual autonomy um, and the free market policies only worth as much as they can bring about the collective social good, instead of um, instead of valuable in and of themselves, as someone in David French's camp may see. Um, economics is moralized for him, and at the end of the day, people want to be more socially conservative, but are quite economically liberal, and are willing to take far more government in their lives if it brings about a better good. He defines himself as post-fusionist, um, which the article identifies as um, sharing in the crowd of Tucker Carlson and um, Josh Hawley, uh, definitely a statement that hasn't. Or the article said the brilliant young senator Josh Hawley, obviously a statement that didn't age very well. Um, Amari declares that Reagan's country is gone, and we need to project political power into cultural areas in order to have any chance of holding on to our traditional values. So this is a debate that has been happening for. It's far before Trump, and it's obviously got continued since this article was published and will continue into the future. But I like this article because it distills down what's going on in the Christian right um, and in these two camps that from the outside may seem very similar, but it's kind of an open-ended question of where they're going to go. And I think that whichever one wins out will have huge implications for future what do you guys
1: think yeah i thought this this article did a really good job uh diagnosing not prognosing it just kind of saying this is this is what one camp thinks this is what the other camp thinks and not really trying to uh spin one way or another uh so kudos to the author for doing that um surprising no one i would definitely lean more with french and that civility should be a thing cooler heads will prevail etc etc i as much as i loathe the things trump has done especially in light of recent events i am somewhat i, I don't think i agree with amari but i am sympathetic in that it does seem that a lot of the anti-conservative movements are very much kind of equally scorched earth and so there is kind of this like look let's quit let's quit if we're going to stop pretending sorry if the other side is going to stop pretending to be nice why should we pretend that we're nice uh, to which my response, I think, would say uh, because eventually people will get tired of bombast and anger and want actual constructive solutions, which seems that French is more interested in proposing. Uh, but it, this was a really solid article. I really did enjoy it. I would lean. I would lean more French as David French as well,
2: even though he is opposed to a lot of the more um, Catholic-leaning social policies or philosophies that i lean into i mean mcintyre would not fit well with french's policy of a plurality of values um and just kind of public square let the first amendment stand um however i think the problem here is that like Amari's talking about how you know there's a that that policies need to have some orientation towards ultimate meaning and towards the collective social good but where he what he gets wrong is the fact that Trump's policies don't actually access that they don't actually access the good that the Catholic scholars um, that he's claiming would support them actually do.
1: It's almost as if they have the form but not the essence. Um, as in, exactly. like a lot of a lot of the policies that ha- he has been putting forward, um, nothing immediately come uh, may not policy, but like uh, the um, Supreme Court nominees are certainly uh, mm-hmm. ones that. I'm guessing the majority of Catholics would nod their heads in approval of. So in some ways he is doing that, but he is not doing that with the actual essence of wanting to achieve some end good.
0: The thing that that I think is difficult for me is that I, I, I think when I think about these issues, I very much disconnect it from the political moment we're in. Uh, or that they were in at at their time of writing uh in terms of trumpism and i think you're right or maybe there's it it's to the point where i don't necessarily want to admit that for a lot of the um post-fusionist conservative thinkers that are trying to figure out what comes next whether that's you know Patrick Deneen or Sora Bamari um or oh i i forgot the guy who wrote the virtues of nationalism that you hate, Sam. Uh, Yoram Hazoni. Yoram Hazoni. Yeah. Do not like that guy. So so there are a lot of post fusionist fusionism thinkers who, with their ideas in the abstract, I think there's a lot of potential work to be done there and a lot of potential value in what they're talking about. Because I do think that, you know, if we want to tie well, no, I I, I won't do Miguel Gilchrist the disservice of um tying uh left hemisphere into this conversation. But There is a lot of politics that doesn't, you know, that's not focused on either people where their actual needs are, or you could say that don't consider the family as the fundamental unit of society and seek to hold that up. And I think that that is something, especially with things like um, the potential for like with population crises um, and just, you know, standard of living type stuff. I think there's a, there's interesting thinking and work to be done there where you have, potentially reached a point where you know not not the like the dumb version of the you know we just shouldn't have a trade deficit and we should start a trade war with everyone that we possibly can but we have made a lot of efficiency in international trade that hasn't translated into the the second part of the argument where you that there are always winners and losers in trade but everyone wins overall the redistribution I think, is more or less universally understood to that the winners haven't compensated the losers um, with a with a portion of the efficiency gains. And that has a lot of cyclical and downstream effects on culture, on family, on uh, issues that I don't think traditional Republican David Frenchism politics deals with. Now, that's not Amari's argument. He's arguing much more in the cultural sphere. Um, and that's where Trump starts coloring things. Is it that these people actually are really inspired by these ideas or are they just trying to, you know, ride the tiger that's currently loose um, and go as far as they can with it. So I guess in, in some ways it's a shame that, that the Saurabh Amari versus David French battle is the one that's happening. Cause I think there's a better one um, mm. that, that ha- has interesting things uh,
2: uh, that could come from. I agree with you there. And like, especially David French on economics, he's, as traditional of a conservative as he might seem, he has some pretty nuanced economic policies and is definitely quite a ways away from, you know, as free of an economy as possible because all people will benefit in the end. He definitely does not believe that. And so, you know, these, these lines feel kind of arbitrary because, I mean, here's an evangelical with the nuanced economic policies, and Amari looking at, you know, nationalism, which... Traditionally, seems to fall more into the evangelical line. Evangelical line. So, I mean, this is the debate. This is kind of how the debate's been crystallized. But I kind of feel like it doesn't. Like Breffin was saying, there's a lot more interesting of a debate to happen, and this isn't it.
1: I so what one of the, the things has uh, come up a couple times in this article is um kind of the how how one is supposed to orient a society and a lot and both French and Amari, I believe, agreeing that it needs to be some sort of uh, towards some some sort of end goal. However, French saying there is too much of a disagreement on end goals to be able to solidify it on one particular thing. Uh saying, yeah, there's a lot of disagreement and I don't care about those who disagree with me. I want to like, we will win and put those policies in place. Um, which I think at that point, I'm, I'm going to be much more with French on, on that in that as frustrating as I find it, uh, my, my, the opposing viewpoint: my freedom is their freedom, and their freedom is my freedom. And I, as frustrating as I find that, and I think uh, McIntyre brings this up towards the end of After Virtue, uh, where there's just kind of this uh, not irreconcilable, but this difficult difficulty in conversation that comes with that. However, I don't think there's any way around that, and I disagree with Amari saying that we need to kind of take a scorched earth. I I think a much better way of going about this would be oh the much better war to be fought is not a political one but rather a cultural one one of the uh, nice little zingers that uh, was said i believe it was french saying this um uh and how he asked are evangelical conservatives going to change the culture they're going to make third rate evangelical movies to compete with hbo um and i think that actually therein lies a huge issue uh within American conservatism, which, side note, I always thought it was conservativism, not conservatism, uh, and I am learning the error of my ways. Uh, the more you know. I know, right? Uh, so I, I, if, if we actually want to win this culture war, I think we do indeed need better things than third-rate evangelical movies. Uh, if we want to win the culture war, we need to develop a culture that is capable of fighting uh, the, the opponent.
0: So just to sort of close this this section out, I have a an, inter- an interesting question, just like, because I don't know the answer to this. But, you know, this is sort of a crystallized debate among two intellectual magnets around whom others rotate and identify their personal politics. And I think it is likely true and very sad that most people who would identify as conservative in the United States, most republicans are relatively unaware of these people and or they wouldn't actually they don't care terribly much about this intellectual debate about like should we slightly orient ourselves more towards you know aggressively fighting things uh, with the power of the state in the cultural sphere or whether or not we should just like dump a whole bunch more money into litigating first amendment stuff i don't think they they care about that i think the capital thing you know sort of demonstrates that a lot of people are much more interested in you know crappy news sites um, but do you think, or are you aware of rather of similar kinds of arguments that happen on the left side of the political spectrum in the United States? Are there these kind of like centralizing philosopher figures who are having debates mm. like this? Cause I don't know.
1: Uh, I'm not personally aware. I, uh, I have a friend who's very much into economics and uh, there are apparently economists on the left side that will have a lot more nuanced discussion around, okay, manipulating the uh, economy in this way or that way will, produce this and that effects and whatnot, that is um, not laissez-faire traditional conservatism or conservatism uh, as far as markets are concerned. However, as this article pointed out, even a lot of conservatives are starting to lean more away towards um, high-ex uh, economics. But as far as political uh, philosophy, I'm not sure. Right.
2: Yeah, I'm not aware of anybody either. I mean, I think that the big, the big debate I've seen from left-leaning friends is not necessarily philosophical but it's how do they respond to joe biden because there's a debate as to whether on the the the, the left should embrace him give him a pass even accept him but i've seen other people on the left who are saying he's just as bad as trump in terms of being an old white man who yeah
1: that is i mean just patently not true like really he's some people are actually making the claim on some people on the left are making the claim that Biden is a bad Trump
2: because he's not, he's not changing any of the systemic problems.
1: Interesting. Well, so I, deep, yeah, interesting. I, I, so I guess that actually would be one thing where I, it's not necessarily political philosophy it's so much sociological, uh, or sociology slash socio philosophy. The author of, um, uh, what's it like white fragility or, um, Oh, what's the, What's the other really popular, popular one right now? Um, it's a in letter format. I don't think it's that, but yeah, you know which one I'm talking about. So I know who you're talking about, yeah. That would, at the very least, that's the popular discourse. But however, as you said, like, this isn't popular discourse that we're discussing right now. This is yeah. behind the scenes. And I, I have to think that there are more left-leaning political philosophers that are discussing in the same thing as this.
0: I mean, what the, so my response to the, to that question, though, obviously veiled with ignorance um, but my guess would be, just from my own a- experience, that if the this right wing, or at least like the uh intelligentsia, let's say, of the right wing, is more like the philosophy, like a question of our philosophy, um, the left wing seems more like a question of activism. Um, it seems like m- much mm-hmm. more practical focused seems to be how it how it works, and it's less. It's it's more. I guess the the priors are assumed, and the aim is assumed. To, it's just a matter of pitting your policy package versus someone else's.
1: Mm, but intriguing
0: yeah yeah um but again i I don't know if that's true um but i'm sure that when you know these uh imaginary political people are pitting their arguments against each other it makes them quite mad and when one is mad one rants steven what do you got for
1: us uh yes indeed i had a rant uh it's on actually a similar topic uh news and propaganda uh, so I was recently visiting uh, Seattle and visiting some friends, and it was a lovely time on the whole. Uh, this is no way meant to be a slight against them. But in the background, they had on uh, CNN on their uh, on their TV. And it was honestly fascinating listening to pretty much the same thing being said over and over and over again, just in slightly different repackaged ways. Within, I mean, you're talking a five-minute uh, window, the same message being hit home home over and over over, uh, again and realizing so first to be clear the horrors of what happened at the capitol are of course not okay we should not be storming the capitol which i feel like i shouldn't have to clarify but just to be clear so i don't have another episode that bites me in the butt um but i remember it, it being pointed out to me uh in amusing ourselves to death a great book would highly recommend that watching the news rarely ever has an impact on my life that I have never once, other than voting and weather, uh, have changed my daily routine or even changed one single action because of a piece of news I read. And the sort of news that Fox, CNN, et al. bring about is one that it seems primarily fear-based, seems primarily, uh, in a Jacques-Louis sort of way, a propaganda uh, way, in that it is designed to keep you in a constant state of insert whatever state's, a particular political party wants you to be in at the time. Uh, whether it's Trump's, you are constantly in a sense of triumphalism, or uh, the less you are in a constant state of fear. Uh, there is, there's just something quite dangerous about it. So all that to say, obviously, there are times to be informed, and of uh, all times, perhaps a, an actual attack on the Capitol is maybe one of them. Though, for any of our listeners who are constantly listening to the news, uh, as a friendly piece of advice, try just not listening to news for a week and see what happens. You'd be surprised. I know I was surprised by how much better off my life was without it. Uh, so I'll say uh, professional news agencies suck right now.
2: Great. Yeah, I I have a rant.
1: Um, and you know, it's
2: it's it's um it's similar to yours. It's it's related to the news. It's related to um, politics quite a bit. And I guess we kind of have, have in the past tried to stray a little bit away from this, but not really. So we're going to hit it straight on. Is um, on Sunday, my priest posed a question to the congregation, which is um, it was a famous quote from somebody who I did not write down, but it was, How can one serve the world without growing to hate it? Um, which has been in- very applicable this week. Um, left, right, and center, all sides seem completely dead set on utilizing the events of last Wednesday to move their political football one way or another. Um, the left criticizes the obvious good um but with the backhanded tone that the protesters should have been treated worse or that this um with with the um license to do worse to them because of this um the right uh responds by saying that by basically focusing entirely on the social media crackdown and the left is hypocrisy hypocrisy um in the meantime the center is smugly in the middle saying that they had predicted all this was going to happen um and then our Promptly, ruthlessly attacked from both sides. The question stands why is it this way? And why are all these sides seeing something, an event that should be so blatantly and obviously bad, should warrant a response, and then should warrant us moving forwards? Um, In my personal situation, I deeply emphasize with David French's comments from the article, um, where it feels like I did not move at all, and yet. The entire of all camps shifted around me, and I seem to be the outcast of all of them. Um, my temptation may even be to feel disgust towards all these sides. On the other person, on the other side, on the other hand of this, each person I see carries the same tone. Everyone is losing their minds. Is the constant remark. Um, how can you possibly follow Biden, Trump, vaccinators, anti-maskers, whoever? Um, these contempt filled words are troubling, um, but I find myself drawn to the exact emotion that they are expressing my final conclusion to this is how can I be certain in taking a stand for something or for anything um, and responding to this troubling situation without merely
1: becoming one of them.
2: That's a great quote. To say. <laughs> <laughs> yep.
1: right. um, real quick. I know we're in Rantan, uh, but like I, so uh, one of the Dostoevsky's big things was uh, how the more kind of one loves humanity in the abstract, the more one ends up hating the individuals. And the more one Mm. loves the individual human, human, the more one tends to hate humanity in the abstract. And there is kind of this difficult, how do you serve humans without actually developing an antipathy towards humanity? I think that is a really important uh, question for you. Yep. That is the question I pose
2: to myself and to our listeners.
0: Yeah. And I think that that's all... Like just like a very core problem of our culture, um, which is uh, a- another one of the core problems of our culture, which is the subject of my rant. Because there's like, you know, a lot of thought. Um, we've gone into some of it today trying to diagnose like the core issues of our society. Like what are the pathologies? What are the problem, deep yeah. structural problems behind the decay that we see, the lack of imagination, the lack of virtue? And I think that I have figured it out. As we've talked about today, your environment shapes the person you become. And a key part of that is 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 footwear. And the real problem is that we have failed to instill footwear virtue in many of our children and across our society. And the, the, the key way to solve this is boot culture, um, because we have a distinct lack of boot culture. For Christmas, I was gifted my first set of boots. And I can tell you, they have changed me. They've made me a better person. Uh, but more importantly, they've made me a man. Too many of us, remain in this perpetual childhood just trapped in ratty sneakers and some of us are deceived and seduced uh by the worst of all shoes vans and their many varied brethren and those are the worst because they imitate the good of boots but they're only at ankle height and they're made of inferior materials they instill weakness in our very souls um and just as a final point consider this we as as a cannot pick ourselves up by our bootstraps if we have not the boots with which to strap. Cease being a child in vans, become a man in boots.
1: Would you say that they're good for your souls? Oh, hey! uh,
0: oh damn it. I should have made that pun. Now I feel bad. I got you but covered. You got me covered. All right. Yeah. Uh yeah. Wear boots be 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 good. Be best even. Dude, that's deep. I'll have to invest in that at some point. I have yeah.
1: I can attest, boots are what's up or what's and, down.
0: And 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 I can further attest that the person that pushed me over the edge to be like, you know what, I am I am a weak muling child in my faux leather vans uh, was Steven. I, I saw his boots and I was like, God damn, what a man! And I was like, I need some of those, so I got some of those.
1: I uh, I'll take a virtual bow.
0: There we go. Uh, and that bow with that bow, we will exit stage left or stage right. I don't actually know where you're supposed to exit. I think there's a... Stage right brain?
1: Stage right brain. I mean, it depends on what the play is. I mean, you're going to...
2: Yeah, it depends on which character you are. I think there's a classic. There's a classic.
1: For example, are you the bureaucrat? If you're that character, then you can just exit, uh, I don't know, get thrown off the stage.
0: Yes. Uh, Publicly executed on stage by an angry member of the audience. Yeah. Now we're talking. Uh, But speaking of talking, we will cease. Because for everyone here at The Problem With Reading Podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Stan. And uh, wear boots. That is, That will solve all the problems. Good? Okay.
1: Boots.